Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Welcome to our first episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVNUDGE Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavioral change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder of the BVNUDGE Unit, and with me is my amazing colleague, Jenik Mantashian. Hi, Jenik. Hi, Eric. Well, it is amazing to be joining you remotely from the U.S. It's a special honor to be kicking off the very first episode with you. And when you shared with me who we booked as our first guest, I have to say I was very impressed. But then again, you're always full of good surprises. So will you tell our listeners who we're speaking with today? Yes, of course. I am very honored to be introducing our guest. Today, we will be speaking with Dan Ariely. Dan is a world leader in behavioral science, James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University, and author of the New York Times best-selling books, Predictably Rational, The Upside of Irrationality, and The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. He has founded numerous companies and think tanks. His TED Talks have been viewed over 15 million times, and in 2018, he was named as one of the top 50 most influential living psychologists in the world. Dan, I met you around 10 years ago at Duke. We talked for half a day, and after this discussion, I was so convinced about the power of behavioral science to contribute to better business and better lives that I decided to create my BVNUG unit and so to write books to promote it in my country first and everywhere I can. So we met several times since this moment, but I am more than happy and honored to have the opportunity of a new in-depth conversation 10 years later. Welcome, Dan. Uh, Lovely to be here. Uh, Hi from my uh, office in Durham, North Carolina. Great. Thank you, Dan. It's a real pleasure to be speaking with you today. So as a practitioner in this space, I get a lot of questions around how I started my career. I know you have an unconventional story about how you got started. Yeah, so uh, so as you know, I, I, I had a very long period in hospital. And uh, and the thing that I came with hospital with was, was not just, you know, pain and uh, specific knowledge, was also the sense of there were lots of things that were done in a way I didn't want them to be to be done. Um, you know, as I, as I learn more, I realize how much hospitals are built for the doctors and not the patients. But at that moment, I didn't think about it in that, in that general way. I just thought about all the things I didn't like as a patient and uh, not just like all, all the things that created me extra agony and pain and so on. And, and I wanted to fix it. And uh, in fact, I, I think I'm not a good a social scientist from this perspective. You know, so I, I think that there are the scientists who are fascinated by a problem for its own sake. Like somebody is just interested in time discounting. I just want to understand everything in time discounting for its own sake. And, and that's very beautiful. And I admire that. And I'm much more of, a, of an engineer, I think, at heart. I, I look at things that I don't like, and I'm using social science as a tool to change it. 
so, you know, in hospital, there was the question of bandage removal. There were questions on placebos. There were questions of uh, patient control. There, there were all kinds of things that I didn't, I didn't like. Uh, and and I'm I'm on this long journey to to try and see what uh, what I can fix. Um, I'll, I'll tell you something uh, that is kind of a bit morbid and difficult, uh, but not something I I've shared before. Um, my my biggest fear is to die in hospital. I actually don't mind dying, but dying in hospital I really don't want. Um, you know the the way. I have I have very uh, strong memories of um surgeries that go awry like I have I have this uh, very vivid memory of uh the monitor beep 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 beep, beep and 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 the anesthesiologist says Dan can you hear me and I want to say yes but I can't move and he said Dan can you hear me the beep 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 beep, beep, beep going faster and faster and then eventually I hear a beep and I think to myself this is it I it's over, um, and then of course things blank, and and I wake up. Uh, who knows how many hours later, and I'm alive, um, and and I never managed to understand what what happened. Uh, Darren, they didn't tell me. Uh, but anyway, I really I really detest hospitals, um, and. And and I really don't want to die in hospital. Like you know, I th- I think that's the the way. Like from the patient of a perspective of the patient, at the it's it's painful, it's confusing. You don't understand the sounds. Um, you don't understand where things are coming from. Um, so I'm perfectly fine. So so one of the projects I have been started exploring, and you know, it took me a long time, was was the question of how how should we end our lives. I had a, a public discussion once. The I didn't know what the topic would be. I just arrived somewhere, and there was a a guy who had a Nobel Prize in biology, and and the question they they gave us was, can we beat death? And you know, the biologist talked about it from the biology perspective, and I said, yes, I think we can beat death, but if we commit suicide, like beating death, it means dying in our own terms and not letting uh, the world dictate it. So, so you know, you know, this research on uh, peak and end. Right, and the research on the peak and end says that we remember things based on the uh, trajectory, based on the the highest moment and the the last part of the the experience. And this is why we end meals with a dessert, or you know, we we really worry about the end part of of the experience. At the end of life, we do it in the worst possible way. It's 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 the part you would not design this way. You would not design it to end up in the a miserable place where people are being, you know, somebody's trying to resuscitate you, breaking your ribs, puncturing your lungs, and you're in agony and 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 dying slowly. Um, so, so I do want to figure out how to do it, how to do it better. And and it's not easy, right? The, the, as as social scientists, the things that are easy for us to do are small nudges. Let's change the print here and print there, and and those are great things. You can't deal with the end of life in that, in that way. So I'm examining all kinds of things about um, how we end our life, and I I want to figure out what's the right way. And how do we? And if you think about this question, it's it's about how do we get people to feel 
that they've accomplished something, that we feel loved. Uh, how do you think about the person who is going to pass away, but also about their relatives who are staying? Um, so, you know, what what would you want in your hospital bed or in your in your home uh, to to remind you of the things that you've accomplished? Uh, how how do you want acceptance? How what is what gets get us to acceptance? So, anyway, I don't have a good answer for this, but but this is an example of something that troubles me. Life in hospital, uh, something that I personally don't want to experience, the end of life in this way. And I'm spending time trying to uh, figure out how, how would I approach that. And I don't have a good answer yet. It will, it will take some time. But how would I approach something like this and what would I design in a different way? Wow. Well, that's quite a mission, I have to say. I can only imagine the nature of the research that would go into that type of exploration. So Dan, are there specific researchers or mentors that really influenced you in terms of your career? For example, you referenced the peak and end rule. Yeah, a lot. So, so the person that I uh, maybe admire the most from a research perspective is George Lowenstein. And, uh, and the reason I think is that George has this tremendous capacity to observe things. Right, and and the the first thing that social scientists I think do is, it's about observational skills. Um, it's very hard to to observe with fresh eyes the things that we see every day. But George has, I think, an uncanny capacity to sit, and look at the same things that we all see, uh, all the time, and just just look at it from a slightly different um, perspective. So that's. That's one of my uh, academic heroes. Um, another one is Tom Walston. Tom Walston was my uh, PhD advisor in the psychology department. Um, and, and I loved him because of the depth. He was going into everything. And, you know, I, I personally don't go always to the depth that I think he would make him proud. Uh, sometimes I care more about just solving the problem than to understand it in a deep way. But but Tom had this uh, amazing uh, ability to dig deeper and deeper and, and get another layer and another layer. And just being exposed to it, even though I don't do it all the time, uh, has been has been tremendous. And then one one other, actually, I'll mention two other people. Um, in the next bucket, I will mention. Uh, John Lynch and Al Roth. And and for me, those two are people that I uh, admire uh, from a more holistic perspective. So it's they're, of course, great researchers and are very clear thinkers. And, you know, they both have tremendous contribution. Al, of course, you know, got the Nobel Prize uh, for some of his work. But in addition to them being um, such good researchers, I think they both understand life in a in a better in a better way. And I don't like the term work life balance because uh, it, it suggests a contradiction. But they they both understand work life harmony. And uh, and I've I've made a ton of mistakes in that uh, work life harmony. But I look at the two of them as really amazing people who are. Um, 
doing amazing work, getting your colleagues to do uh, amazing work, um, having just a, an overall positive impact uh, on, on the field. Um, both of them, for example, uh, never say no to uh, young faculty or PhD students to give them help or advice. Um, so, so there's something about the way that they live a holistic academic life that I um, envy and aim to get to one day. That's great. I think it's a perfect goal for all of us. And actually, some of your comments lead to my next question. What practical advice would you give to people trying to get into the field of behavioral economics? So, you know, so behavioral economics has a lot of flavors. Um, first of all, in academia, it has multiple flavors. Uh, there are people who are more theoretical that want to create an economic model with some uh, behavioral parameter, right? Here's prospect theory plus a parameter, or here's something else plus, plus a parameter. And there are people who approach it from psychology. Um, uh, there are people who approach it from law. And then there are people who approach it from a more, more practical perspective. Uh, there are more and more people in public policy, in public health, um, I guess law school would be there as well. So there are people who are trying to do it academically, but academically in a practical way. And then there are people who are really trying to do practical work, uh, such as yourself. Um, and and when, when people ask me, I, I try to understand what they want. Do they want the academic path or the practitioner path? And it's not that one is better than the other. They're just different. And... Uh, what I what I I try to tell them is you know sometimes people read a book or a couple of papers and say oh, I want to do that and I say look um, a book is a book and it describes some of the things that go into doing research but it doesn't describe everything so before you go and dedicate your life to it go and volunteer in a lab for six months and see if you like collecting the data there's a difference between enjoying um, learning about something. Uh, doing research, doing research is different, learning about something is different and applying is different. So first of all, try to figure out which one you want to do and then try to figure out the the academic path versus the practitioner path. And, and if you decide to go on the academic path, there are different flavors and you have to figure out the flavor. And one way to do it is to read papers and ask yourself, which paper would I like to have written? Basically, try to understand what what your voice, and then try to study with that person that that, that wrote your papers. That, and then if you want to be a practitioner, practitioners also have different flavors: um, policy, health, and you know, behavioral economics for me is kind of an applied discipline, and it's a discipline of the little details, largely. It's a discipline of little details. And you can't do it without understanding the little detail. So before you go and help a particular company, for example, you study the company, you understand the process, you look at it, and you, you look at a lot of little details of what you're doing, and only then you can suggest changes. The same thing if you want to do a behavioral scientist that works on health, you have to understand health. You can't just study economic psychology, research methods, and statistics and go to health, you should study something like this. So if you're trying to be a practitioner, 
then I recommend to people to also get the domain-specific information that, they are, uh, that they think they'll, they'll go for. Thank you. That was really helpful. I really like the idea about reading the paper and then backing into it that way. And one kind of curious question I had, if you weren't a behavioral scientist, what would you be doing right now? So, you know, when I, when I look at the development of, I, I love science. I think science is kind of a wonderful way to have a curiosity and try to make a difference. Um, and, and I think right now there's tremendous advances in molecular biology. Um, I, I think I would have gone, um, have gone in that direction. Um, I, I used to think I used to think that I that my main interest is behavioral change, and that if I wasn't a social scientist, I would have become like a politician or a, something like that. But I, I learned that it's not it's not true. Um, I don't have the the thick skin uh, needed to. Uh, to be a politician, so, um, but but I think I think my my two areas are, are let's let's try to make some change for good, and which area we choose it is is less important. So I, I think science is kind of my my tool, and if I wasn't in social science, I think molecular biology. Okay, then coming to your uh, work. Which experiments have you conducted that you feel were the most insightful or perhaps are ones that you are most proud of? So, you know, there's always a recency bias that experiments we've done more recently are, uh, of course, seem more insightful. But, but for me, there's an experiment that uh, got me to discover things that I didn't know and got me to think very differently. Um, and and that's the experiment we did in Kenya. Uh, we're trying to incentivize savings. And I'll give you the quick version. Uh, the quick version is we approach very, very low-income people in Kenya, people who live in about $10 a day. They have about two days of work a week. Every day they work, they make about $5. So they have low income and fluctuating income. And we're trying to save, to get them to save a bit of money for a rainy day. Because if they don't have any money saved for a rainy day, when bad stuff happens, life just deteriorates. They have to borrow at a very high interest rate or sell some tools or uh, utensils or something. And we try different things. We created a saving plan and we try different things. We try to send them reminders. We tried reminders from their kids. We try to give them a 10% bone, a match, a 20% match. We try to give them match uh, without loss aversion and with loss aversion. Um, and, and all of this was great and everything worked. But, but we also tried to give them a coin. And the coin had uh, 24 numbers on it. It was a coin that we made in China. It cost us 20 cents. Most of it was shipping. And it had uh, 24 numbers written on the coin on the, on the edges of it to indicate the 24 weeks of the program. And we said, please put that coin somewhere in your hut. And every week, mark the number for that week, week one, two, three, four, and mark it like a, a, a horizontally, scratch it with a knife if you saved, uh, horizontally and scratch it vertically if you didn't save. So we had text, text from kids, reminders, financial incentives, loss aversion, and the coin. 
and the coin was by far the biggest winner. Compared to the other approaches, it, it basically doubled savings. So first of all, that was surprising to me. Now, I thought it would be effective, but I didn't think it would be that effective. So every time we have a result that is surprising, you learn more than if it's not surprising. Uh, but but the, the reason I did uh, the coin was that when I was in Soweto, Soweto is a slum in South Africa. When I was in Soweto, um, I was sitting... Uh, actually, Jenik, you would like this. So, so, so you know, if you think about, um, you know, how can we study poverty, right? Uh, it's it's like when when I start when I study buying coffee, I know how to buy coffee. I don't need to go and do kind of the anthropological uh, work. But when you go to a place you really don't know, uh, it's good to go and spend some time, not to come with an arrogance of the somebody who knows. So. Anyway, so I spend a lot of time in Soweto, and, and I spend a day sitting in a place that sells funeral insurance. And as you know, funerals in South Africa are very, very expensive. People spend between one to two years of income on funerals. And of course, people don't have that reserved, so they have funeral insurance. Um, by the way, their weddings are very modest. They spend The, the, the funeral is the, is the celebration of a lifetime uh, for them. Um, by the way, of course, it's more rational, right? It's more rational to celebrate funerals than weddings because with, with funerals, you know you'll only have one. And so, so I sit in this place that sells funeral insurance and his father comes and he comes with his son. And as you know, kids in slums work all the time. Uh, so, you know, the fact that his father took his son from work to bring him with him to buy funeral insurance is kind of surprising. And not only that, the father buys funeral insurance, gets the paper certificate, and hands it in kind of a ceremony to his son. And as he does this, I think to myself, what is this father doing? Why the ceremony? And, and I started thinking about it, and what I realized is that imagine a poor father who happened to make some money today, got a job, doesn't happen every day, and he's putting some of this money away in insurance or savings. What will the family see tonight? They'll see less, right? At that level of poverty is a direct translation. If you have some money goes to saving on insurance, there's less food on the table, less kerosene, less water, today or tomorrow. If you're not as poor, it will not be immediately, but it will come. And Anyway, so, so, so the experiment worked. The coin was very effective. It was surprising to me that it was so effective. But then it got me to think in another layer. And I said, think about savings. Uh, we used to save in goats, goats, chickens. And when we saved in goats and chickens, what was good about it is we could come home from the office and we could see what the, how much the neighbor is saving. Right? Something was visible. Saving was visible. Then we moved to money, and then we moved to digital money, and we took this very important category called saving and insurance and made it invisible. And we took this other category called spending and made it extra visible. So now we have this challenge that saving is difficult for all kinds of reasons, right? It's long-term, it's abstract, all kinds of things, but it's also invisible. And I started thinking 
more generally about how do we how do we make the invisible visible and so so I'm telling you all this story because you know I I was in in Soweto I had this idea for the coin I plugged it into the experiment I didn't think it would be that successful it came out the most successful and then it started helping me think about the nature of money and the nature of things that are invisible and to basically think about all kinds of things in life that are right now invisible and maybe one of our job is to make them visible because if we want something to capture people's attention and to drive behavior maybe the first step is to make it is to make it visible so so i like this experiment because and and maybe you you know for you it says oh you know these are trivial thoughts it took me a long time to figure them out and and the experiment really helped me to to think about all of those questions so that's that's why i like it so much okay thanks a lot um could you tell us more about why you decided to write a book predictably rational which is now one of the most influential books in our community I think I'm not sure but I remember you saying your initial idea was to write a book about kitchen or cooking or something like this. That's right. That's exactly right. So so I was um I started my career at MIT, uh, a place I I loved and I enjoyed being there and I um you know like everybody else it's a very it's a very difficult uh, not difficult in a bad way. It's a, it's a place where people work work very hard. Um my first few years i used to have office hours at midnight and the students would show up uh so so i was i was there writing academic papers and as you know writing academic papers is is not fun for anybody right it's not fun to read it's not fun to write it's not fun to review i mean the whole the whole process is a bit bizarre but that's what you do and and i felt like trying to write something more fun but but i had my colleagues and i didn't want to be judged by uh, you know writing something fun so i thought how do i find the right distance something that is close enough to social science that i can write about social science which i love but far away that my colleagues would not say that i'm selling out or something like that um so i decided to write a book uh, about life in the kitchen and The idea was not so much to write a recipe a book the idea was to take the kitchen as a metaphor for life in the kitchen we try and we fail and we explore uh, we think about others we procrastinate we overprepare we underprepare I mean lots of things are happening in the kitchen so I thought about the kitchen as a as a lab to make metaphors about about life and and because I don't I didn't really make experiments on on kitchen directly i thought it would be kind of um, far enough that i couldn't talk about it and close enough that i would have something to say anyway i i wrote a couple of chapters and i start sending them to book agents and i got the same answer from all of them cute idea you write relatively okay uh, but what kind of a book is this it's not humor it's not a cookbook it's like where where exactly does it does it fall and and uh and somebody said you know where would it show in the bookshelf like where would you imagine in the bookstore at the time there were bookstores um so i said what do you mean in the window like, what's the problem um so so anyway 
I would I shopped it from book agent to book agent. I got the same response from everybody. Eventually, there was one person who said she was very very kind, and she said, "Look, stop this nonsense." She said, "This book will never sell." She said, "There's just no hope, and don't just try to shop it with somebody else. Right? It just wouldn't sell. Stop it. You're wasting your time and other people's time." And she said, "If you really want to write." Uh, this book, you first have to publish a book about your research. But I said, but look, but I don't want to write a book about my research. I already write about my research all, all, all day long. I want to write in a different format. And she said, fine, you have to do it. Find your voice. Try to do uh, something like this. And if you write a book, she said, doesn't matter how many people would buy it. As long as it will be published, then you could do your cookbook. Mm -hmm. So we are waiting for your cookbook. <laughs> Now the good news is that in the last twelve uh, years, I go back to that cookbook from time to time. Uh, I have uh, it's it's all on my hard drive. I keep on changing with it from time to time. I keep on playing with it. So one day it would it would come. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, yeah, so some... before, before yeah, I, I want to say something else about writing. Um, you know, for an academic to start writing for non-academics wasn't easy. And it took me a long time to find a voice of, of how, to, how to write. And if you, if you think about predictably rational, you, and especially, uh, you know, Eric, that you know me for quite a while, um, first of all, you could, you could hear my voice there, right? I, uh, I write in a way that is similar to the way I talk. And it, it's interesting how long it took me to, to get there because we, we, we all have a different writing voice and speaking voice. And um, to figure out that for me, writing in my speaking voice was, was a good uh, combination took me, took me a while. So that's one thing. The second thing is I took uh, two things from the literature uh, and implemented them in writing. Uh, the first one was that I made the research method the hero of each chapter. Right? So when we, when we give academic talks, we go very quickly over the introduction. These three guys said something else. Here is the essence. Here's the experiment. And the experiment is really the mystery. It's the detective novel. It's like, what will happen? Guess uh, what it is. So I, I gave a lot of space for the research method. I think the research method is the hero, the unsung hero of, of, of social science is how do we take an, an idea, translate into something, make sure that the important pieces are there, but abstract away the unimportant pieces. How do we distill an idea into something testable? And the other thing I did was I used the identifiable victim effect. So I could describe a method and I say 250 people did this and 250 people did that. But instead, I say, think about John. John, and I give them some information. And here's John, and here's how John is going through the experiment. And I did that because I wanted people to f try to simulate and feel what it would mean like it going through one version of the experiment versus the other. And then feel the difference that framing does or, or something else. So, I, I, so I, I use the identifiable victim effect as well. To get, to get people to identify with one person going through the experiment. And I was hoping that this way they would kind of feel what it would have been like or try to, try to simulate what it would have been like to be in the experiment. Okay, great. 
There, are, there is some uh, criticism against behavioral economics, uh, saying that it is not so new, or we think people are stupid, so we need to create relevant choice architecture to help people make good decisions for themselves, the community of the world, without taking care of educating or training. So, first, my question is, do you think behavioral economics experiments have added new knowledge to social psychology, to uh, decision neuroscience, uh, to cognitive um, science, and so on? So, so yeah, I, I don't think there's a real question about that. I think the, um, the criticism of nothing is new uh, could be going back to, you know, Adam Smith and the moral sentiment, right? So, um, you know, for for economists to believe in hyper-rationality or rationality is, is a relatively new thing. And you could come and say, oh, you know, you didn't invent irrationality. We, we've been talking about it for a long time. That's true. But we stopped talking about it for a while, and it's important to keep on talking about that. So, so I think that criticism is... Whether it's relevant or not, it, it's whether it's true or not, it's irrelevant. The reality is that you know, 30 years ago, many decisions businesses and governments made were assuming the rational actor. That had to stop. It has to stop. There's still too many decisions uh, based on that. Uh, we have to make decisions that are informed on reality. Now, if people are acting perfectly rational in one domain, great. But if they're not, uh, we're going to make useless decisions and and you know because um you know one of the areas i've been studying is dishonesty think about something like the death penalty right? the death penalty is kind of a severe penalty um you know the all the research that has been done comparing states that have the death penalty to states that don't have the death penalty show no change in crime rate no change in the crime rate that deserves the death penalty and no change in crime rate at all so so we have this idea, if there was only a big punishment, people would behave very differently. And we do a policy and it's useless. I mean, the only thing it does is it kills people and it's very expensive. But it has no no deterrence on crime. So if we don't understand, like, whether behavioral economics is new or not, the reality is that we're, we're not treating it enough. So we need to keep on hammering and saying, let's think about what's true. And, and by the way, if there are cases where standard economics predict perfectly well, I'm very happy with it. I, I'm here to help us build a better world, not to fight between psychology and economics. That's, that's not a, a good fight to have. Um, the, the second thing to, to realize, though, is that, you know, unlike physics, uh, with physics, things have not changed for a long time. Uh, in social science, things change all the time. So um, think about something like education. Uh, the way we wanted to build an education system when I was a kid is very different from the way we should build an education system right now. Now, there are some principles that are still relevant, like you know, procrastination, uh, how memory uh, works. Uh, but they are completely different tools, completely different distractions, uh, completely different things that kids do out of school, co completely different ways to socially interact. And we, we can't ignore all of those things. 
so so social science has the amazing benefit but also the challenge that life keeps on changing and new problems keep on showing up like when i was a kid texting and driving was not a problem there were no phones uh, cell phones right so so but but now that this is killing lots of people we have to understand it so i i think that the world is changing and and with it social science has more more problems to deal with not problems with the science but more topics to deal with new topics to deal with topics you know attention was never that important now it's a crucial a crucial topic okay the second main criticism to me is um, about nudging and educating so uh, what is your perspective in this debate about nudging educating and even the development of critical thinking so, so so first of all you know i i think that um you know edu- the word education is used in lots of different ways uh, but but and and you know different interpretations have different meaning but one interpretation of the word education is to say you teach people something they understand it they internalize it and they use it all the time and that I think we just have no evidence uh, for that. And maybe the the best example is financial literacy. In the US, we spend between seven and $800 million a year teaching people financial literacy. And John Lynch and his colleagues look at all the studies ever to be conducted on financial literacy and they found out that people remember, right? You go to a class, a long class, a short class, they look at all of them and people remember what was taught but in terms of acting differently the answer is that the change is tiny Uh, it's a little higher immediately after the class but it goes down quite rapidly and in total they estimate the improvement is 0.1 percent if you look at savings and there's a more recent paper that looked again at more data and they think it's 0.2 percent twice as much but both of them are basically zero so I think that's a good example. Like, like we teach people, but but we also place people in impossible situations. Like, imagine I teach you something about how to spend money correctly, but I also give you five credit cards, and I also surround you with advertisements. Um, which one is going to win? So, so I think that, I, you know, I'm, I'm a university professor. I like education. But but if you if you think about education as a here's a principle, learn it, understand it, internalize it, act 100% by it, that's just a naive assumption. We we don't have yet an example for that. Now we could have, for example, here's a principle. Learn it once, execute it once, and have it carrying it out for you, like. If we could do education just before people sign up for uh, retirement savings or just before people decide on a mortgage, then I think it's great. But I don't call it education. It's a mindset intervention just before people acting. And, And the last thing I would say is about nudging. So, So the field kind of started in the policy area around nudging. 
And I think it was a very good starting point, right? Nudging is not threatening. You can say it's not a big, it's just small. It's also cute. It's a nudge. Um, people can opt out. We're not really changing it. And why this frame and not that, that frame? And, and I think it was an, an easy sell, relatively speaking, an easy sell politically. Uh, but, you know, we're 10 years later or 12 years later, and I think it's time to realize that uh, nudging is limited and that uh, sometimes we need things that are much more aggressive. <clears throat> so, you know, all the nudging in the world would not solve global warming. Um, you know, this, it's just the system is set up in a, in a way that it's not going to be helpful. Um, texting and driving. You know the forces you're fighting with are just too are just too large. Um, smoking. So I, I think when we take some of the big the big topics, I think we need to figure out uh, where we stand on paternalism and how much are we willing to uh, to push people and and be paternalistic. And personally, the the more I study decision making. Uh, the more I'm willing to be paternalistic. Now I did, I did do for myself, but it's it's open for everybody. I did I did for myself a calculator to help me think about when I'm willing to be paternalistic. And it has factors like how big is the size of the mistake that people are making. Small mistake, fine. You know, you buy a different cup, kind of coffee. I don't care. If it's a big mistake, uh, maybe I care more. No, not maybe, I, I care more. It's if a mistake is a decision that you make many times. Um, maybe you have the opportunity to learn. So I should be less paternalistic. If it's something like retirement savings, you know, I don't want people to wake up at age 65 and say, oops, I made a mistake. There's no repeating it. Um, so uh, when there's a symmetry of information, when the, the, the risk for mistake is big, when there's no chance to recover uh, from bad decision, when you need real expertise to make the decision. So I, I now look at problems and I, I, I try to think very carefully about what level of paternalism am I okay with? And there's, not a, there's no good answer for this. We each will have our own response but but I will say that as the world is getting more complex, as decisions are getting more difficult, and as we move to a world of self-service, right? One of the things that happened with the internet revolution is that we are now our travel agents and we are customer service representatives and we are our own bankers, right? We do all of these things and, and the world is becoming more complex. Like to, to decide about your treatment plan now much, much more difficult than it used to be. So people also have less time. So the combination of people have less time, decisions are more complex, that all helps me uh, be more comfortable with, with higher level of paternalism. And as a field, I think we need to kind of come to some term and, and figure out uh, how, how we want to handle this. So, Dan, there is a small book you have written, uh, which has been a key source of inspiration for myself and for uh, the team. The book is called Payoff. This one. 
I like it very much. It's mainly about how a lot of companies are wrong about how they, how they try to motivate employees and what leaders and managers should do to generate much more engagement, well-being, performance at work. Could you tell us more about this? Yeah, so so first of all, I will say that uh, this book starts with a very difficult introduction uh, about a, a kid I was trying to uh, to help who was burned very in a very difficult way. So, uh, I, I discovered that, that over the years writing, I uh, sometimes feel more comfortable sharing with myself, partially because I feel like it's an ongoing discussion. Like with you, Eric, you know, we met many years ago. And, you know, if I write, uh, I, I have a feeling that people read and react. And, and I, I have an image that we can continue the discussion. So so it's a very revealing, uh, I think, uh, introduction. And, and then I talk about all kinds of things that um, that companies do wrong. But I'll tell you about a new project that kind of overcomes this. So... So I've been, I've been spending a lot of time getting lots of data about uh, how companies treat their employees. So in payoff and in the research, we go to one company at a time. Uh, here, I collected data. Um, I, got, I got data sets from many companies across many years. So I have data from 2006 until 2019 um, of around 800 companies. And for each company, I have how they treat their employees in terms of um, equality of pay and quality of furniture and do people feel safe and management transparency and 70-some uh, dimensions. And I basically played the following game. I said, imagine I have just one dimension. Let's call it quality of furniture. And I'll only deal with the companies that are public companies. And I basically would say, imagine I played the following game. Imagine in 2006, I got the data for the companies on how they treat their employees on quality of furniture. And I sorted the companies from the companies who treat their employees best to worst. And I bought in the stock market in the price of 2006, the companies who treat their employees best in terms of quality of furniture. And I kept that portfolio. In 2007, I got new data. And maybe one company went up into my portfolio, one company went down. And I kept a portfolio from 2006 until today of the 20% best company per year who treat their employees best on quality of furniture, on equality between men and women, each of those 70-some dimensions. And then I can compare this to the stock market. I can compare it to the S&P 500, for example, the standard measure for, for the stock market. And it turns out that almost everything beats the S&P 500. Actually, all but two of the, of the dimension beat the S&P 500. And if I buy the bottom 20%, almost all of them underperform the S&P 500. So that was kind of amazing because it says that if you measure how companies treat their employees, it's very easy to beat the S&P 500 or to, or to short companies in a good way. Uh, but of course, some questions or some dimensions outperform the S&P by just a little bit, and some outperform it by a lot. And that's, that's a real interesting question for a social scientist. So what are the things 
that that get companies to win it by a lot. So, um, for example, salary. I'll ask you. Uh, what do you think? Salary matters a lot or matters a little? I know because I have read your book. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm a little biased. I'm going to sit here and say it it, it. it means everything to me. I'm talking to my boss right now through the computer. So. I see. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so here is what we find. We find that salary doesn't matter. You know, Janik. <laughs> uh, but fairness. I didn't read that book, Eric. <laughs> But wait, but 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 fairness in salary matters a lot, right? Because because the the reality is that the way we experience salary is we don't think about our salary on a daily basis. But if we sit in the cubicle next to somebody else that we feel is get paid unfairly, that grinds on us all the time. Uh, quality of furniture doesn't matter. Um, things that have to do with autonomy matters a lot. Uh, Uh, people, companies that rate high on the question, I feel that in this company, honest mistakes are valued, do very well. The things that really matter are the things that give people autonomy and freedom and respect. Um, uh, by the way, bureaucracy is a killer of productivity because bureaucracy, what you're doing really is you're telling people, I don't trust you. You go to lunch, show me 16 receipts and a picture uh, to prove that you actually, actually went there. Um, so, so this this data for me um, was was a good was a good uh, cross examination of the market, right? Not company by company, but looking across the market. And and by the way, it's true for all sectors. Like we said, oh, you know, maybe it's just in IT, but not in manufacturing. Not true. We found the same equation. Uh, basically, is is effective in each. Uh, in each strategy. Um, when, when we finished this uh, research project, uh, the question was, what's next? You know, in, in academics, uh, our what next is let's publish a paper and uh, let's hope that somebody will take this idea and move, and move forward with this. Um, I, I didn't think that that's a good, uh, a good way of, of uh, uh, using um uh, using this data uh, so i actually opened the hedge fund i never imagined i would be in the in the hedge fund business but um but but my hope is that you know in five, 10 years um you know we have the backward data and we can say oh you know if you if you think about human capital uh this is but but i hope is is you know in in five or 10 years to show people the real returns So the kind of my activist uh, hat is to say uh, when companies buy a warehouse, it's an investment. Uh, when companies uh, invest in human capital, it's a cost, right? That's just, that's just how things are categorized. Uh, how do we make it different? So we're trying to get the U.S. to legislate that every yearly returns uh, companies will be, have to ask to 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 report their investment in human capital. Um, but I also want these funds to basically have an index there and people say, oh, you know, this is the, this is the benefit you get just by treating your employees, employees well. And, you know, uh, we, need, we, need, uh, we need the message, the message out. And it's, it's amazing because it's, it's one of those things that everybody seems to know 
Like they don't, they don't always know like salary versus relatively salary. They don't always know the, the, the nuances. People know that it's important, but they don't do enough uh, about it. So we, we are here to make it salient and clear and hope that people would pay more attention. Yeah. Uh, from your point of view, how could behavioral science learnings be applied by organizations in the private sector and for which type of question? So, so I think it's on all questions that have to do with behavior. Right, so, and, and, and there are very few questions that are not, but if you make a component for a Reddit resistor on the phone, you know, I have nothing that I can, I can help you with. Uh, but when it comes to behavior, there's a lot to do. And, and I think there's a, maybe, maybe there's a good distinction between little things and big things. Uh, they are examining what we do now and say, where are the next best improvements out there? Can we improve the sign-up flow? Can we improve retention? Kind of that's one. And that's the easiest part. The, the bigger one is to think in a broad way, what is it that we're really doing here? Uh, and what assumptions are we making? And are those assumptions actually right? And and that that sometimes requires breaking the rules and it sometimes require not being um, adherent to the current project and, and thinking more broadly. But I think social science gives us a language to think about what is it that we're trying to achieve in this case. So just as an example, let's say we have a credit card. We can examine the small details. What get people to use the credit card twice more per week? and what would get people to sign up for automatic payment, all kinds of things like that, how to optimize points. I mean, there's lots of things we could do, right? Lots of value that you could do as a, as a social scientist. Yeah, but you can also ask the question, what is credit card all about? What is it that we're trying to, to achieve? Uh, are, we, are we trying to achieve um, a understanding of payments? Uh, are we trying to confuse people about uh, what it is? Uh, are we trying to help people plan? Are we trying to help people fight more about money or fight less about money with a significant other? Uh, are we trying to get people to use money better? Are we trying to get people to use worse? But we can, we can think about what it is that we're really trying to achieve. And once we think about that, then we can start rebuilding the product with a better understanding of what it is that we're trying to achieve. So unfortunately, we've run out of time. Dan, thank you so much for everything. Do you mind sharing with our listeners where they can get more information about you and your work? Uh, so I have a website, uh, danarielli.com, www.danarielly.com. And I'm uh, sorry our time is out. It was lovely uh, to talk to you again, Eric. Janique, nice to, nice to meet you. Looking forward to next time. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.